0: Hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 97. Thanks so much for joining me. A pleasure, as always. We'll have our featured guest coming up at the bottom of the hour. That is Lance Larson. Uh, he'll be joining us soon, but before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you love poetry. I mean... We love poetry so much. This is my favorite part. Sunday is like such a great day for me. I have a, uh, I sleep in now that there's no poetry spawn in the morning. Then I have a softball game in the afternoon. And then I write a poem really quick. And then we do the Rattlecast. It really does not beat this. And if you feel the same way and you love the Rattlecast aspect of Sunday and writing a poem every week and all that stuff, please do make sure you click the like button and share and uh, click the bell for notifications. Make sure you're on our Facebook page. You're liking and following and turning on notifications for that too. All that good stuff. Please go ahead and do that now because that is how uh, poetry spreads around the internet. And it doesn't work without your help in that regards. Um, So hello. Good to see everybody. The audience coming on in. Um, Now, before we begin uh, with Lance Larson, of course, the new format, we're going to do Poetry Spawn Live for the first half an hour. And if you haven't seen it yet, today's poem was uh, Rosemary Watala Tromer's The Price of Nothing. And uh, I'm going to call up Rosemary right now. She should be here. And um, let's give her a ring. Hey, Rosemary. There you come. Hello. (laughs) Perfect. It's so good to see you. It's good to see you, too. How are you? I'm doing great. It's been a year. Of course, you were the guest about a year ago. Um, but you I don't think we've had you on. Maybe you had a Ruth Bader-Ginsburg poem too. I can't remember if we had you on for that. Or yes, not.
1: I think I did. I came on for just for the poets respond.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, it's so cool to 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 hear from you again. Um, I just love your poems always. Um, do you want to just explain about a little bit about what this poem was about today?
1: Yes. So um friend, I need to figure out where I have Okay, so I'm sorry. Will you say your question again, friend? I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I just wanted I you
0: so to, uh, you know, introduce the poem. Like, like, what was this story that you uh, were inspired to write a poem about?
1: Okay, so this is this is a, my friend Holiday Mathis sends me this article. Um, she, she knows that I would be interested in it because of this, this podcast I do on creativity and creative process that you've been on actually, Tim. Mm -hmm. And, and the title of this, this article is an Italian artist auctioned off an invisible sculpture for $18,300. It's literally made of nothing. And the, the artist is this Italian man, Salvatore. Garau, I'm not totally sure that I'm saying his name right, but he suggests that that the point was to activate the power of the imagination, and and here it is the the person who bought it literally got a certificate that says um, that he he bought this this sculpture. The name of the sculpture is I am, and he's required to to tape off a five by five space in his house where. He will exhibit nothing. Um,
0: (laughs) So so that's (laughs) even worse. So I thought I didn't catch that point in the story that he, the artist doesn't even come and make the tape. He has to, the the person who buys it has to tape, make the tape square themselves.
1: (laughs) You know, actually I'm not clear about that. That was how I interpreted Mm it. Um, That's funny. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) <laughs> the whole thing about it is it, it's so absurd and it's kind of fabulous and it kind of pisses me off. Like I have so many responses to this, um, partly because, and I think I, I mentioned this in, in um, I mentioned it in the poem and also in my, in that little bio I wrote that I I'm enthralled with nothing. Like I do actually have a real life love affair with nothing. Um, I've written a lot of poems about nothing, including, you know, one that I have an altar with nothing on it at all. And how people sometimes feel sorry for me, like, shouldn't there be something on the altar? And I'm like, what could be better than nothing? Um, just the pure potential of nothing, you know, it's, it's a blank page. That's Mm -hmm. what, you know, Every time we sit down to a blank page, we get to meet that pure potential of nothing.
0: Absolutely. So um, because because you're you know famously a poet who writes a poem every day, um, yes, and so yeah, you so confront that that nothing, that. the blank page of nothing, and then fill it in every every day.
1: Isn't it exciting? I mean, that's what we do. You know, whether you're a writer and you have a blank page, you're an artist and a blank canvas, or an actor with a blank stage, and and then we go and we we fill it in with with everything. So I just I think I, I love this idea of of the nothing that holds the everything.
0: So I think I think I saw this was auctioned, right? I'm, I'm, I'm only skimmed yes, the stories.
1: Auction. So so, mean, so
0: the question is, how much would you have paid? I'm I, I'm guessing you wouldn't have paid eighteen thousand dollars for this. How uh, much
1: would Rosemary Watello yes, pay for this? How much this?
0: would you have paid? Because I'd pay like twenty bucks or something, you know. <laughs>
1: <Yeah. laughs> oh, how high would I go for this nothing? I don't I I might be tempted to create my own nothing to be honest. I don't know if I could have part- <laughs> I think part of my issue with this article, you know, and with this event is is that they that they did end up putting a, an actual value on it and that's the part that rubs me wrong, right? Like I love that that they found value in it. But I don't like that that it had an actual price. Mm-hmm. Like that's the part that I'm like, eargh, eargh. <laughs> I don't know about that part.
0: Did, did you look into the uh, the sculptor at all? It, it reminded me of um I can't remember which um Kurt Vonnegut book it is. It might be Cats Cats Eye or Cats Cradle, but um there's one where there's an artist who just uses a, a blank. Um he paints a canvas all one color, and he calls it like the sublime. But then hidden underneath. There's this like exquisite mural that's so realistic and amazing. And it's because that he could make the mural underneath that he made the one color canvas. Um, is it like that? Is he actually a great sculptor where you could, he can get away with it because he actually is good? Um... Is
1: that an interesting question? I don't know, but yeah. I do know that he's done other, what does he call them? Immaterial sc- invisible sculptures he's done other immaterial uh, pieces before too mm-hmm. i think this is his priciest one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: interesting.
1: and i know this is not the first time he's been paid for nothing literally
0: mm-hmm. um, well it was just such yeah. a fun story and it was unusual you know usually the poetry spawn poems are about like really intense important things and and a lot of um you know emotion about them and, and then to have this a, a funner lighter st- story turning into a really good poem was really interesting so i'm glad you could write this and share it with us do you want to go ahead and read it
1: Yeah, here we go. This is The Price of Nothing. What could be more valuable than nothing? The nothing that frames the thinker. The nothing that holds every bowl, every vase, every bust, every thought. Let others buy the clay, the steel, the papier-mâché. I will be satisfied with nothing more than nothing. Nothing pleases me. Nothing enchants me. Nothing, as Heisenberg says, has a weight. Just think of the space here beside me where you are not. If... Someone asks me why I have a five-by-five-foot empty space taped off in my home with a plaque that says, I am. It is because I am so in love with nothing. Imagine it. Nothing. The color of happiness. Nothing. The size of love. Nothing. The Shape of God.
0: Excellent poem. Uh, Rosemary Watola Tromer, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you and, and sharing a poem.
1: Hey, nice to see you, Tim. Thanks yeah. so much for all you do. Thank yeah, you. my
0: pleasure. Have a good have a good night. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, that was uh, Once again, Rosemary Watola Tromer. And uh, her her website, which you can find the link on uh, rattle.com, of course, is Wordwoman.com. Word woman with an A. W. O-R-D-W-A-O-M-A-N dot com. So you can find her really easily at her website. She does write a poem every day. Uh, Amazing poems um, come across uh, Rosemary's desk every day. So go check her out. Check her blog out and all the cool things that she does. Now we have a second poem this week. Um, uh, We'll talk to the poet right now. This is going to be Tuesday's poem, so we'll have a preview of it. This is Leah Mueller, and uh, we're going to call Leah on the phone. Hey, Leah, you're live on the air. Thanks so much for joining me. I think I can hear myself in the background, so shut that off if you're listening. Hey, Leah, so I'm so glad you could join us. Um, I think I don't hear myself anymore. Okay, we're good.
3: Yes, I have um, shut you off.
0: <laughs> yeah, no problem. It's like one of those radio shows with the uh, the call in, you know, the, the delayed caller. So caller, turn off your radio. Um, and that'll be a good note for everybody in the open lines later to know um, that they should shut off their their stream as they're listening because that delay so Leah it's so great you could join us I'm so glad uh, you could share this poem and uh, and talk to us tonight do you want to explain a little bit about what you wrote about
3: um well it's about everybody's uh favorite villain who's kind of like Mr. Burns on, on the Simpsons you know
4: mm-hmm.
3: um, um good old Jeff Bezos and uh you know the fellows just as we all know, got his finger in just about every pie and um, just keeps expanding his, his empire. And, um, you know, it just seemed very funny, very amusing to me that he wanted to expand even further and uh, go off into space. And it just um, really inspired a lot of jokes between uh, my friends and me on Facebook Um About three or four days ago, I wrote some status about, uh, well, you know, we can all hope that he gets lost in space and becomes a gigantic supernova and turns into space dust. And um, that wound up being um, an inspiration for the poem, basically. Um, I just kind of sat down and thought, well, I should turn this into a poem because there's just something so funny about it and
0: um so i did yeah there is so, so what are the details he's going up into space um it's like a short flight right it's only a few minutes
3: yeah very short he's got a lot to attend to back okay. on earth i'm sure
0: and this is uh, his his blue origin i think he's kind of competing with um uh, Elon Musk for the, I was going to say, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah they have, was pretty uh, evident. And I won't, I won't mention anything about what the rocket ship is shaped like. As I was just going
3: to say we're on the same page with that. It was exactly what I was, I was figuring out a way to say. It. say
0: mm-hmm.
3: What kind of phallic.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I love taking yeah. the the the, wor- the thing that's worse about him, in my opinion, and you mentioned this in the poem is that he, you know, bought the Washington post and, um, I don't know. That's just a little too much for me. Like Amazon, I'm you know, honestly, we have a Prime account. We don't sell rattle on uh, Amazon, but we do have a Prime account, huh. and uh, we watch the we watch the movies and things on there. But um, uh, uh, but but that he owns the Washington Post while servicing a contract with the CIA always is the thing that makes him feel like a oh, yeah. super villain to me. Um, a contract oh, that's yeah. worth more than the, uh, the more than the uh, he bought the Washington Post for. So. Um, I don't know. So so let's hear this poem. Yeah. This is uh, Lost Everything in Space. Everything gets
3: to be kind of a hobby, you know, when, you, when you're that rich almost.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's just, too, it's just too much. I, I, we don't need those kind of uh, characters, I don't think. But uh, anyway. No,
3: <laughs> no, no. We're on the same page with that. Okay. The name of my poem is called Lost in Space for Jeb. In space, no one can hear you ask, do you have a prime account at Whole Foods? nor can they offer free shipping with a 30-day trial membership. The Washington Post, with, with its endless chatter of neoliberal propaganda, fades into distant memory. Just you, with your fishbowl helmet, framing your baldness like a translucent crown. Fly into the outer reaches of the galaxy, colonize Mars into an enormous warehouse. No one will clock in late for their graveyard shift. You won't need to count the days before your dividends arrive, that final billion-dollar deposit, until you explode into a magnificent supernova, molecules scattering their alms to a plundered and impoverished cosmos somewhere. A woman orders underwear from a small online company. Somewhere, a programmer finds discount software at the last radio shack. You are oblivious space dust, particles floating like dollar bills through the galaxies, one for each remaining star.
0: Excellent. And that was uh, Leah Mueller, of course, reading Lost in Space. And I just love the details. That's what sold the poem for me, that especially the one about um, uh, with your fishbowl helmet framing your baldness like a translucent crown. I think I'm never going to be able to look at uh, Jeff Bezos again without seeing his uh, translucent crown. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so, so thanks for sharing that. That was very, another, another fun poem. My work is done. Yeah. 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 Thanks so much, Leah. Thank you. Yep. Have a good night. Good night. Yeah, so that was uh, that was Tuesday's poem, a little preview of what we're going to be providing there. Um, I think, let's see. So we have uh, 10 minutes to go before I'm going to call up um, Lance Larson. We have a few people. Did anybody say for sure? Let, I'm going to do some, um, let's share some poems from the past. We had a great year of Poetry Spawn last year, and uh, just so many really wonderful poems. And uh, this is one of the poems we published um, a year ago this week. This was, uh, Raleigh, who's a poem, a poet in Canada who, uh, just always interesting. He writes, he has his own style. He does comics too. He does these really short poems, um, that, that are really unlike any other person's style of writing. And last year, there was this article. The only response, here, I'll read, uh, I'll show this on screen. This is his, uh, his note the only response to opinion editors being canceled for publishing opinions is for readers to cancel their subscriptions in my opinion so he's he's talking about this article here New York Times opinion editor resigns after outrage over Tom Cotton op-ed uh James Bennett stepped down after down following the opinion article that called for using the military against civil unrest and um and this was the story here uh, from last year, and this is Raleigh's poem about that, which was uh, disagreeing with uh, the cancellation of uh, of this author. So here's uh, Raleigh's A Wrong Opinion, and I'll just read it for y'all. Raleigh, A Wrong Opinion, said the grim children of this pleasant century, feeding me in the guillotine, is worse by far than murder. From my head, then unburdened, I grasped at last, dizzily, their wisdom. It's a really short poem we did on June 16th last year from Raleigh. And uh, let me share this other one, too. This was uh, another poem that came a year ago this week. And this was uh, Amit Majmadar, who was also a guest on the Rinalcast, um last summer, too. But this was from June 9th, 2020. Um, Amit says, uh, This poem responds to a co- the complex and longstanding and only now expressed catastrophe. That is playing out in cities across our country. This poem's online quiz format allowed the collapse into one poem of the violence and anguish and the safety and frivolity that coexist in different parts of America right now: the tumultuous cities, the serene suburbs, the rubber-bullet brutality of real life, and the word-word brutality of online life. And uh, the article that he linked to, once I get the pop-ups gone, was um. This article here, this was uh, George Floyd fallout in Chicago, downtown lockdown, unrest spreads south to south, west sides and some suburbs. So he was looking at the um, just the, the fallout of what was going on here in the wake of uh, George Floyd's death and how it was affecting different areas in completely different ways. And he used this uh, news quiz poem format, and um, I'm going to read this one for you too. This is a uh, news quiz. Once again by Amit Maj Madar and here we go. News Quiz Are you up on current events? Take this fun quiz to test your knowledge. The women, woman wove the wicker basket, A. To hold the flecked egg she found orphaned on the lawn. B. Because her fingers deprived of this over and over would reach for a cigarette or a gun. C. To carry her infant downstream into Pharaoh's household. D. So the hot air balloon could float the hunted man to safety. Where the stress falls. A. Is where the knee does. B. The structure fails. C. Batons spondy against advancing riot shields. D. All of the above. Just last night. Downtown. An obelisk. Is a monument. A. To a slave owner beloved for his false hair and false teeth. B to the first victorious general who when begged to become a king said no c shaped like a lighthouse stranded far from the sea d and a lightning rod and the point of a spear while the city center burned a the rocket launched the latest iteration of white flight b nero fiddled on his phone c the suburbs went for a bike ride D. The prize-winning poet posted a paragraph lamenting her privilege and promising to listen more. Before you could see your country on your phone at all times, you A. Cherished your circadian rhythm, B. Climbed more trees, C. Interrogated your surroundings no further than sixth grade social studies, D. Thought of kneeling as an act of humility in a cathedral, E. Thought of getting down on one knee as how a man humbles himself before the woman he's asking to marry him. F. Floated down the river of your days in an oblivious wicker basket past triumphal obelisks built by slaves. And that was the poem of the week for June 9th by Amit Maj Madar. And that was a poem I was sort of feeling very similar. Like, like the, what was going on it had so little effect where we are in a tiny town in the middle of nowhere. And um, so it was interesting to read this uh, poem in a news quiz format. Let's go to... Um, the open lines now yeah so diane knox has a poet respond poem and let's uh let's call up diane knox hey diane you are live on the air thanks so much for joining us oh hi oh i thought i turned you off here oh, hey, no problem i'll meet you for a second okay i think you're good now okay good <laughs> so so what did you want to share with us tonight well, uh, I shared
5: it last year at this time, too,
0: mm-hmm.
5: and it seems to be around again. It's the five-year anniversary for uh, Pulse in Orlando, Florida, where 49 people were killed, mm-hmm. 53 wounded. Uh, the other headline this weekend is uh, rash of mass shootings This uh, stirs U.S. fears heading into summer.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, it's probably going to be another summer like that. I mean, that's sort of right. the American way. I at mean, this point. eight this weekend already.
6: Yeah,
5: yeah. Uh, and oh my God, was his mantra, and Om is the Buddhist mantra, meaning the ultimate reality.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: So this is repulsed. Oh my God, dude! Oh my God, dude! Oh my God, dude! Oh my God, dude! People are getting shot, dude! We need to get out of here, dude! Oh, my God, dude. Oh, my God, dude. Barely made it out. Barely is enough. Enough is way too much. No more is too late. The patients have no pulse. Vibrant, pulsating hearts. Music. Silent. Repulsing blood. Cries. Silence. Ringtones. Everyone get out and keep running away from pulse. Keep running with your pulse. Keep your pulse running. Oh my God, dude. He keeps saying, Oh my God, dude. Anguish faced, tormented vocals, shock eyes, shaking skin. Oh my God, dude. People are getting shot, dude. Om, my God. We need Om, my God. Om, your God. Om, all God. Om, our God. Om, all God, dude. Om, all God, dude. Om, all God, dude. People are not getting shot. Om all God, dude.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Diane. An intense poem that was repulsed after the, uh, the fifth anniversary of the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, Florida. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, once again, Diane Knox with uh, Repulsed. And um, so let me tell you, uh, we have four minutes to we're going to move on to Lance Larson. Let me just remind you all, if you would like to share a poem on the open lines later, we have uh, Nivedita is going to be here, Richard Westheimer. We have a 206 number. We have, uh, that's it so far. Um, so if you would like to share your poems later, email them right now to, oh, Canon McAfee has a poem up here for the uh, open, open mic portion later. Uh, if you would like to share your poems, uh, email them right now to open mic. that's openmic at rattle.com. And then you either, during the open line section, either uh, send me a phone call at 818-850-7727. Just let it ring a couple times and hang up. I will call you back when the time is right. Or uh, send me a chat message over Skype to rattle poetry, all one word, and then I will uh, call you when the time is right. Same deal. And that's how you sign up for the open mic here. And I thought maybe I would do... So I was trying to decide if I should still do these psyku, and um, since, I'm, since we're doing just one show a week, but I thought I'd keep at it. They're really short. And let me go. This is, a, this is my psycho for the week, and it'll be a good buffer to like, measure the time for when I'm supposed to call Lance or the guest every week. So this is a study out of the University School of Medicine in St. Louis. I'll put it up on screen. And uh, the study here, study finds brain areas involved in seeking information about bad possibilities. Provides insight into how people decide whether they want to know what the future holds. And so what these researchers did is they basically trained two monkeys uh, to uh, respond to signals th- to try to let them know what was coming in the future. Either a reward in the form of a drop of uh, sugar, like fruit juice, or a, um, a penalty or a, or something negative, which was a puff of air in the face. So they'd get see a little symbol they would, um, I don't think there's any other pictures here now. So there would, uh, they would see a little symbol and then it would tell them, Hey, there might be good news coming or Hey, there might be bad news coming. And then they'd see another signal and it would say, Oh, you're right. It really is bad news or up. Oh, it really is good news. So they had to have two signals to know what was coming. And then the, and they use that to test whether or not the monkeys cared about the second signal. If that makes sense, if the monkeys wanted to, um, follow the news and, um, So then they hooked them up to um, MRI machines and and looked at the different regions of the brain that were processing this choice, whether or not they wanted to know if good or bad news was coming. And so what they're trying to do is map the way the brain um, processes this and and how we want to um, process news and and find information as we're navigating this digital age. So uh, anyway, my quick psychou about this, and the whole point of the psycho is to show that... uh, News is everywhere, and you can write a little saiku about anything. A little haiku or a little short poem about anything you want. And uh, this was my haiku based on this research. I'm thinking about the way uh, we move through social media. And here uh, is my little saiku. Doom scrolling our way through the golden age. It's this week's saiku. Doom scrolling our way through the golden age. There's your saiku for this week. Uh, little short way to break up the show before we go to our next guest and I'm going to do that right now so hang on tight I'm going to put up some bumper music and uh, put up this little splash screen here that I'm going to call up Lance Larson this week's guest and I'll be right back back with this week's guest. uh, It's Lance Larson. Uh, Lance Larson was born in Idaho, educated at Brigham Young University, where he earned both his BA and MA, and at the University of Houston, where he earned his PhD in literature and creative writing. He's the author of several collections of poetry, including Erasable Walls and All Their Animal Brilliance, winner of the Tampa Review Prize, Backyard Alchemy, and What the Body Knows, his most recent book, uh, which I'll put on screen right here. Uh, what the body knows by lance larson his poems touch on mormon heritage while examining everyday encounters larson received a grant from the national endowment for the arts in 2012 and in 2012 the governor of utah appointed him to be the state poet laureate he's a professor of english at byu and here he is uh, lance larson hey lance how you doing today
7: this is exciting
0: yeah it's just my pleasure i am um, you know i wasn't familiar with your work at all i think i mentioned this on the last show but you submitted some poems for the rattle poetry prize and here that was just the best that was the packet of the year like we have the the poems just kind of end up in the same order usually and um or maybe they don't and uh, but but for some reason after we shuffled them you know i pulled out the poems and realized oh my god like lance has a whole bunch of poems in here that were really good including and also i ran which was a finalist um and so it's really great to get to know your work. And I, I loved your books. You sent two books. Uh, I loved reading them both and then some newer poems too. Uh, do you want to start out with with something?
7: Yes, I'll read a poem uh, titled, with the unlikely title, Mother Teresa This, Mother Teresa That. Um, and by way of background, anyone who has raised teenagers uh, knows that uh, you try to negotiate a kind of civil lexicon with them. Uh, and in our family, we try to um, reduce swearing to a minimum, but kids always find a way to work around that. So this is a poem about the workaround. So instead of swearing by deity, major deity, I had uh, a son that uh, decided to swear by a minor deity, Mother Teresa. So this is, we tried to regulate it and then we just gave up. Mother Teresa this, Mother Teresa that. Like a salty sailor, my son cusses his way out of bed and into the morning. Stub toe and no hot water. Mother Teresa. Burnt bagel. Mother Teresa. What a devious bride of Christ. Orchestrating my son's failures from on high. She who blessed Calcutta lepers makes him run a stop sign, bang, in front of a cop. She who won a Nobel scrambles his brain, smack before a quiz on Brave New World. Mother Teresa, and again, Mother Teresa. Like God and teenage lust, she floats everywhere. What versatility. Dear sainted sister, forgive my son the way he takes your name in vain. For just as often he's moved to praise. From our roof he scopes glorious nebulae. Mother Teresa. Cheesecake dripping with his favorite sea salt caramel. Mother Teresa. No higher rays. And that diva from marching band, trim as the trombone she plays, hair French braided into licks of gold, ah, queen of queens, watch her throw that arm around, sweet Mother Teresa.
0: And that was uh, Mother Teresa this, Mother Teresa that, from uh, What the Body Knows, Les Lawrenson's, uh most recent book. Let's. Um, want to start out, just explain a little bit about how you came into poetry. I'm always curious about that question. Do you remember like the earliest, like one of the first poems you wrote that you cared about, or um, or how do you became a poet? I, I came
7: to it in sort of a backdoor way. I thought I wanted to be a fiction writer as as an undergrad and took courses for two or three years, but I could never move characters from one room to the next. Uh, I wasn't very good with plot. Then took a poetry class and realized that it was just a better fit. This was when I was a senior. And so I gradually shifted over during my master's program. And by the time I was in a PhD, uh, it was nothing but poetry.
0: And, and do you remember, uh, do you, was there a first poem? I'm always curious about a first poem. Like the first yeah, poem think, that sort of ignites like the, the spark of, because we all, I think, I've, and I've seen you mention it too, there's always some kind of like magical brief understanding or something that comes from a poem. Do you remember the first time that happened to you?
7: I think the very first poem, and this was before I embraced poetry, it was in an intro to literature course. Uh, It was Root Cellar by Theodore Rutke. Mm -hmm. You know, a tiny eight line poem that's just filled with detail. Uh, Another poem that um, knocked me over was uh, James Wright, A Blessing. So, you know, anthology gems, but uh, with reason. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
7: Well, do you want to read another poem? Sure. So this is titled uh, What the Body Knows. So it's the title poem of the collection. And um, I think all I would say here is that uh, this is a poem that privileges the kinds of things that we know intuitively in a kind of somatic, um, inward, personal-looking way. And it's written in a collage form. What the Body Knows. Until I was five, I could only fall asleep holding my mother's earlobe. A single crocus can melt a snowbank. On my desk, I keep the jawbone of a deer. When I rub its three bleached teeth, it tells me secrets. Funerals hum when they begin with a honeymoon story. Every portmanteau should house a stash of love letters, jealously guarded but never reread. Once on a high school tennis trip, one of the Zabriskie sisters dozed on my shoulder. After she woke, I apologized for days, never mentioning the wet spot she left on my shirt. In the yearbook, I can find her quick as saliva. I need a new pillow, my niece announced. I don't like the dreams inside my old one. Some birthmarks migrate, some merely move. When my friend's fiance dumped him, he headed for the hills with pictures of her, with matches, with enough voodoo devotion to rub her ashes on his forehead like a warrior before battle. The parrot sorry of courtship and passion. The white sorry of mourning. When my mother turned 90, she said, my mind is like crumbly cheese. She had lost the names of granddaughters and presidents, but remembered to open her mouth. For spice cake. In Florence, where everyone kisses in the streets, chow means either hello or goodbye, depending which way you point your lips.
0: And that was What the Body Knows, the title poem from uh, from What the Body Knows by Lance Larson. And that poem it has so much uh, going on in it. Uh, of, of the things that I was curious about after reading your collections, the, the stylistic elements that you do, there's that... Um, Uh, you mentioned already that it's sort of a collage of many different things being pulled together into one poem. And uh, maybe let's start talking about that at first. Uh, Your wife, Jackie Larson is a uh, painter and collage artist. She did the cover of rattle number 39 or 37. One of those ones back there. Um, and th- does that have any influence on the way that you confront poetry, um, seeing her work all over your house and, and places like that? I mean, she's a very successful artist and um, and brings things together in the same way. So I was thinking about that as I was reading uh, these, especially these prose poems, uh, for the way that you bring in different ideas together. Is that is that something that you do, uh, collaging on intentionally? I don't know that
7: it's intentional, uh, but certainly it's had its... Um Sort of accidental influence. When you do see collages, I, I guess I would explain it this way: that sometimes um, I can understand a literary method or mode better if I can see it visually. So, being surrounded by those collages, it seems like a natural impulse to just bring things together that way. So, I, there was never a moment where I said, "Oh, I can do collage." But I think it has. There's been this sort of constant drip, and it's it's had its effect. Uh, we've also um, collaborated on various shows. And so uh, when we do that and we combine poetry, my poetry and her paintings and so forth, then the collage is more deliberate, I would say.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and then another element that was in there too, um, th- which you, you seem to do a, a good amount, like there's that qu- quote, um, little snippet of sort of epigrammatic speech that you just overhear, it seems like, um, where... Um your mother, when she turned 90, said, my mind is like crumbly cheese. And, um, and there are a lot of those elements, like what, what children say and what like people around say that sort of find their way into poems. Um, do, you, do you find that is something that inspires your writing process? Is that something that you do intentionally? Like, Do you, do you keep a notebook and, and write these things down? I do keep a
7: notebook. Well, not a very good notebook. Mostly I'm writing things down on scraps of paper and index cards and stuffing them in pockets and in books. And then I recover them later. I'm also fascinated by aphorisms. But I, I love the um, the ability that an overheard quote, or maybe we could call it a found poem, has to authenticate something larger. Hmm. Uh, and I always value that when I'm reading other people's poems or stories. And so uh, whenever I can squeeze something like that in, I will. Uh, like a quick example. Um, when my son was three years old, one day he woke up, We lived in a condo in Houston at the time. And he said, see if I can remember it, happy outside, bugs wake up, worms walking. (laughs) And uh, I thought, wow, that's terrific. And I I wrote it down. It's almost like a haiku. And then I made him memorize it and then recite it. Um, And when he was a little older, then he would start to correct, and he would say, worms crawling. But I would make him go back to his original version. I didn't like the revised version. But... (laughs) Yeah, there's something right. about that,
0: that, that like, that, you know, there's that, you know, kids say the darnest things they say, but there's something like real about the way um, poetry is spontaneous speech just comes out sometimes. Uh, you know, we do the Young Poets Anthology, and there's so many great lines in there that like an adult couldn't have written. Right. Um, and why, why do you think that is? Like, what is it about, about poetry that is that universal, I guess, that you can pick up snippets of poetry where people aren't even intending to write poetry?
7: I think part of it is that we haven't, uh, beaten it out of the kids yet, (laughs) but, uh, they haven't absorbed all of the conventions of normalized speech. Um, so they, they live in a surreal world and their language reflects that. And I think as adults, um, we've lost that, that, um, ability to say things fresh. So it's a good source to tap into. I think the same thing happens with conversations when people are just talking. Um, and so you try to, Save out the best parts. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Do Do you remember uh, in this poem in particular the what the body knows, the title poem? Do you remember what sort of where you started with it? Like, you know, when a poem feels collage-y, and there are a lot of things mixed together, I always wonder, like, what was the impetus for it? Do you remember?
7: I really don't. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, I, I can say something about the process though that it's a it's a process of distillation. So this was probably two or three times as long with a lot of free writing just letting one thing lead to another. Um, And then you distill it, drop out the parts that don't make any sense, rearrange. So I I don't really remember what started
0: it. Yeah. Well, I should say if anybody has any questions for Lance, um, I'm watching the chat windows both on Facebook and YouTube. So find those venues and leave a comment there. I'm not watching anything else. But uh, there's chat windows there. If you ask a question, I will pass it on to Lance. But let's hear another poem, Lance.
7: Sure. So this poem is called Work Experience. Uh, I do know where this one came from. Um, Some years ago, we had Philip Levine on campus, who's one of my favorite poets. And during the Q&A after his reading, a student said, Mr. Levine, are all of your poems autobiographical? And his answer uh, surprised me, even though I knew his work well and have read interviews. He said, why would I want to be myself if I could be someone interesting?
0: Mm-hmm.
7: Um and so he gives you the impression that his poems are autobiographical but when you actually start picking them apart you realize that there's a lot of elaboration and invention. So this poem called that I'm going to read is called Work Experience and it's I guess I would describe it as an aspirational CV. Um what would one's life be like if you depended not on actual jobs that you'd held but uh, objects you have Inhabited in earlier lives were, you know, different kinds of flora and fauna. So it's a kind of CV, but not uh, anything human, necessarily. Work experience. Well, let's see. My life as a lizard, I lost my tail twice. As a penny, I never came up heads. As a foxglove, I spilled my pollen helter-skelter, thanks to bees that buffeted and ants that climbed. As an abacus, I favored geishas. As a subway saxophone, I busked broken ballads at 45 miles of darkness per hour. As a cookbook, I savored spills shaped like Florida. As a wormy apple, I was munched by a flirty mirror that never took root. As a rabbit's foot, I glowed neon orange, which multiplied people's luck, all of it bad. As a soldier fly, I had no organ to drink with, but Lord, what papery wings. As a storm cloud, I herded picnickers back into their dented cars and kept the naked bluff to myself. As a used dictionary, I tore in half between lusty and lute and fell apart in a rainy alley. As a funeral vase, I drank nothing but air. But as a raspberry sucker traveling mouth to mouth between two sisters on a bus, all the way to Poughkeepsie, I was sweet, sweet, sweet.
0: And that was work experience uh, by Lance Larson from What the Body Knows. Um, and one of the things people keep telling me I should do is more like artist studio type questions. And so that brings up one that's on my list. So if you um, were not a poet or a professor, uh, what job would you have and why? And, and would, you, would you be able to like it? What would you like in it?
7: Um, you know, this question was asked me uh, in an interview with uh, Massachusetts Review, so maybe I'll just give that answer. It's not that I could actually do this, but I'd be fascinated by it. I would like to be a collage artist, someone like Joseph Cornell, uh, who's a fascinating um, creator, because he didn't possess the rudimentary skills of um, a painter or um, a sketcher, or anyone with those kinds, or a, sculpt, uh, a regular sculptor. Instead, he arranged things, right? Um, And so I'm fascinated by that sort of impulse. Uh, He also lived um, in Flushing, New York, if I'm remembering right, um, on a street called Utopia Parkway. (laughs) Uh, So I've always been fascinated by that, which what poet would not want to inhabit that kind of space.
0: Yeah, so um, along the lines with with that, Donna Best says, I'm enjoying the span of your mind spread in your poems and where it takes me, Lance. And and that's the thing that with these this collage style does is it it leaps through so many different ideas and and puts them together and and I'm just I'm just really fascinated by that because I'm always what interests me in poetry is always the way that it's the the subconscious that's speaking and somehow when you put things together and don't really know what you're doing that it's like the subconscious speaking out too um, and and is that is that why you you like that, that style. Um, like, like what draws you, do you think, to this style of mixing?
7: I, th- I think what draws me to it is that it surprises me. Uh, as a younger poet, I would sit down and try to write a poem from a beginning line to the end. And in a successful session, I would finish a poem. But often what would happen is I would come back to the poem and it would feel dead because it was too driven by concerns of logic and narrative, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, collage, I think, is a way to save the best parts and put them together and give yourself more chances. And I I think it was um, Ann Beatty who once said, um, how does it go? It's one of her stories, Snow. Um, Most lives, this is a a, a garbled version, but most lives will be remarkable if you omit mention of most of them, most (laughs) of the events. So in other words, You can have an hour of of boredom, but if you take this moment of three seconds and this five seconds and put them together, there's something remarkable in in everybody's psychic life. And so I think collage allows the poet to do that more readily because you're not tied to narrative this, then this, then this.
0: Yeah, yeah. I remember when I was a kid, like really little, like five or six watching movies, I remember saying to my mom or dad or somebody, Like, this isn't like life at all. Like, none of the boring stuff happens. And then uh, whoever it was was like, well, that's why it's a movie. It's more fun that way. (laughs) And that's kind of how, you know, just how it goes. Um, One thing I wanted to ask you, too, because we have one more of these uh, poems from um, What the Body Knows that you wanted to read. Your other books um, are are lineated, and this is a book of prose poems. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what the difference is. Um, Like, what do you feel like a prose poem is? It's a question that people ask me all the time, um, especially if we publish one. You know, they'll be like, "How is this a poem? It's in a, it's a paragraph." You know, and and um, and and so there was a conscious decision to make a book of prose poems here. So, how do you conceive of what a pro, uh, what prose poetry is versus regular prose, and and why did you write this book in prose?
6: Yeah.
0: I'm not sure that there's an adequate
7: answer. Uh, people have spent the last 150 years trying to explain the prose poem uh, inadequately. Um, from Baudelaire and, and, and other Rimbaud and other experimental French writers. Um, I guess for me, after writing uh, four collections, I, I grew intimidated, slightly bored with lines because I was spending so much time on them. And I just wanted to try something that seemed freer. And I read a lot of these things, you know. Um, Charles Simic won the Pulitzer Prize around 1990 for a collection of prose poems. And a lot of the poetry world was up in arms about that. I wasn't bothered at all because I thought they worked as postpones. So I gave myself the task to write um, what I thought was lyrical poetry, but without lines. So it changes your strategy slightly. You, you don't get the, the benefit of white space and, and enjambment, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I found happening was that the poems got a little longer. It gave me a little more room to experiment. Uh, I'm also really interested in fiction and nonfiction, and it allowed me to works sort of that uh, space between the interstices of, you know, prose on one hand and and poetry on the other. Um, There's a writer named uh, uh, Brian Evanson who calls these things, uh, flash fiction, prose poetry, um, double agents. And so they sort of steal from both sides or cheat on both sides. So it started out as an experiment and I found that I wrote different sorts of things and by the end of the collection, I wanted to go back to lines. Mm -hmm. I'm not that interested in prose poems anymore, but it was a great experiment and allowed me to conceive of a body of work that would fit into one book.
0: Yeah. Well, just on mine, I I don't read much, um, you know, stuff about poetry or anything. I just read poems. And, um, my, my opinion of it has always been, and I'm just wondering if you feel the same way that, that, um, sort of, uh, writing exists on a continuum between like the mind and the body almost. And so, um, we're pro, Uh, poems are lineated it slows down and makes you pay attention to the physicality of the music of the language more and prose de-emphasizes that and so it makes the makes it happen in the mind's eye more Uh, you know like the movie in your head becomes the more prominent aspect versus the the regulation of the breath in your body Um, and it's all on a continuum so they both do both things Um, but then prose poems exist like in the middle where it's sort of a you know, takes from both sides, as you said. Do you feel that way about it? Like, did it make you feel like you were diving more into images? Because that's kind of what I feel like. It, it becomes more about the movie in your head when it's in prose.
7: I think that's absolutely true. Uh, what's been interesting is that um, I have a a piece that's not in this collection called Tired, which has had two lives: one in prose and one in poetry. Hmm. And I think that they're both viable but different. I probably prefer the one in poetry. Um, but when I'm reading it, 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 there's a different rhythm. And I think if you read it on the page, um, you'd feel that as well. And so, um, right now I don't want to, um, give up white space and enjambment. So I'm really fascinated with line breaks.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, So, but I
7: I think you're absolutely right.
0: Well, let's hear that last, uh, that last prose poem, um, whatever it was.
7: Uh, this one is analogy, uh, for my mother. And I think all you need to know is that, um, It focuses on a story, an event that took place in 1969, but which I didn't hear about, so I was about seven or eight at the time. I didn't hear about this till 2015, so that's what I'm juggling here, and it's an Elegy. Elegy with Bra and Peppermints, 1969. I sing my mother's bra, straight from the dryer, dropped on the bed in a jumble of warm whites, and the peppermints that appeared five minutes later one last inch, nippling each lacy cup. And of course I sing my jokester dad who placed them there like goodbye kisses before whisking himself out the door for three weeks of field work in Death Valley. I sing too my teenage sister, a novice to bras, whom my mother led to the bed without a word, because a spectacle like that satin meets sweet, brazen versus shy, must be shared. I heard this story almost 50 years later, which is to say three days ago. My sister and I were keeping vigil, our dying mom between us, our unconscious 95-pound mom, our next-to-last day on this wobbly planet mom. Sunlight mottled her bed, tubes umbilically bright, morphine, a warmish pool in which she floated towards the wavery deep. Her breaths came ragged and gurgly then, serrated, stabs of air going in and out. What mercy to have the bra tail at this 11th hour, for we all need a story in which to wrap our dead. But what of those myths? Cellophane swirls of red and white. Did my mom hide them away with her lingerie? Or perhaps save one to slip between my father's stunned lips at the airport, a wordless welcome back. Think of the slushy snow Wipers all the way home The singing freeway Singing inside them What minty weather Mouths both cold and hot A sacrament of glisten And dissolve and disappear
0: And that was uh, Elegy with bra and Peppermint's 1969 and listen to that I, um, The thing is I could Imagine um, for a prose poem I can imagine like one of those motion Poems where you're like it's animating what's going on In the text and that's not annoying but with a with a poem with that's lineated, um, I find that annoying, <laughs> you know. So I think that's the difference to me. I don't know. How, I'm just curious if it's, it's how universal that is. Do you want to dive right into um, a lineated poem now, just to see the difference, maybe for the feel of it? Sure. Insomnia
7: bicycle. Sleepless again in the wee hours. What I crave is a phantom two wheeler I can pedal. Bad dreams feeding good thighs. You come too, great horned owl on my shoulder, girl scout compass around my neck. Together we'll crush these curves. I'll channel Nietzsche in the knocking pipes, speak Esperanto to ghosts, practice death curses in the rattling fridge. You come too, time to hum, time to ring this tiny bell and aim our bones
0: at the moon and that was insomnia bicycle um a newer poem so far um uh, not in a book yet right um and, and yeah so so you mentioned um that you love working in line breaks so uh, how do you how do you go about like deciding how a poem looks on the page and where the line breaks go like what elements um go into that
7: um, well people will break lines in any number of, of ways so there are writers like when William carlos williams or sharon olds who don't seem to care, especially where they break lines, or they have in jammed lines, and end on articles and prepositions where it's not a strong line break. I'm too much a formalist to go in for that. I just don't have a feel for it. So I try to end lines on concrete nouns and verbs and telling interesting adjectives whenever possible. So that's one of the elements that determines. I experiment a lot, so um, some, line, some poem times poems will be written in a block, and I'll try them in couplets or three-line stanzas and you know various things. But I'm always um, trying to squeeze as much meaning as I can um, out of line breaks. So if you read down the right-hand margin, usually those are key words in the poems. And whenever um, I can manage it, I prefer one-syllable words over multisyllabic ones because I think there's more punch. That's what I love about English, that you have those strong Anglo-Saxon one-syllable words, which you lose a little bit in romance languages Mm -hmm. as beautiful as they are.
0: That's interesting. I never heard anybody mention that. The one, you know, the monosyllabic punch at the end of a line. I'll have to watch for that. Um, uh, Did you feel like um, when you write are the line breaks sort of guided by the way you are already reading them? Like, I find that I'm trying to break it and to make it be read in the way it is in my head. Or do you find that the way that you're you're breaking the lines and, and structuring the poem visually changes the way you read it? Is there one direction that it's going, or is it just doing both at the same time?
7: I think it's doing both. Uh, I mean, I find poems that are entirely enjammed, um unless they have a, a really strong reason for being so they're a little taxing or they seem arbitrary. At the same time, poems that are all end-stopped seem kind of boring. Like, why, do, why is this written in poems? Because the measure of the line equals the measure um, of the sentence, right? So I want to change it up and squeeze more out of the line breaks as, as I can. So a master of this is Richard Wilbur, you know, one of our 20th century's best, foremost poets. He'll write these elaborate sentences and then drape them through um, various line breaks, um, and you just end up with this um, gorgeous draping effect, but also a tension between what the line says and what the sentence says. And so, again, that's what a poem does. It can double and triple meanings by, by taking advantage of those, uh, those opportunities.
0: Yeah, Richard Wilbur is definitely the, the master of that. Um, we have two questions that are sort of uh, along the same vein. So going back to your collage style a little bit. Um, so a um, question for Lance, this is from Canon um, McAfee. Um, Do you rely on any kind of routine to keep your writing going or going or write more spontaneously? And then in a similar vein, uh, Nate Jacob on Facebook says, does this collage style involve a great deal of crafting or intentionality or is it more stream of consciousness organic associations? So sort of two questions along the same lines. Like what is your routine like? How do you get into that mode? And then are you free associating or um, are you, or is there a lot more intentionality involved as you write them?
7: All right, right. Um, so I, I would say I generally write in the mornings and maybe that's part of the routine that I, I wake early, my mind is empty and fresh and I think I end up trying things that I wouldn't try otherwise. Um, and often I'll read other poets um, just for the language, like, you know, like priming myself to get into language, the language of poetry. Um, I would say that, um, there's a lot of free association, at least at first, but that it always goes through lots of drafts. So it's both things. Um, and I think who was it that Robert Frost, uh, Robert Frost said, uh, free verse is never free for the person who want the poet who wants to do a good job. And he was down on formal po- or uh, free verse poetry Um, of any stripe Um, but I think I like the spirit of what he says and I would like someone to read my poems and say well this is free verse poetry but this person has definitely read formal poetry and is using some of those devices Mm -hmm. and so I'm just looking for compression wordplay but that comes out in sort of later stages Um, so I think you can come to freshness by intense Um, craft as well and attention, attention to all those details. But I like both of those things, just the sort of free association early on and then um, the craft later.
0: Yeah. um, I was going to ask, I lost my train of thought, but why don't we just um, do another poem?
7: Okay. Uh, So I'm going to read this poem is titled book of salt I think all you need to know, by way of background, is um, that it takes place um, on Spiral Jetty, which is uh, an earthwork on the Great Salt Lake. This was created in 1970 by, by Robert Smithson. It consists of an 1,800 long jetty, 1,800 foot jetty, in the shape of a corkscrew that's about five feet wide. So um, he designed it, but he hired earth movers and Um, all kinds of uh, heavy equipment to create it. Soon after he created it in 1970, it went underwater for 30 years. And then when the Great Salt Lake uh, receded, then it came back. Um, And so this celebrates a a visit there um, almost 20 years ago. Book of Salt. I wanted to walk all over art, so I drove to Spiral Jetty. I wanted company, so I took a book of poems. First Course in Turbulence, which promptly slipped from my hand into Great Salt Lake. I grabbed it before it sank, but it wrinkled badly like a botched self-help book, seven times saltier than the sea, a fascicle of tears. A few weeks later, at a signing, I passed that book to its author, who looked me over as if I tortured his firstborn daughter and wanted absolution. I have felt, he wrote, like this book looks. His inscription was now the newest poem in the collection, a backdoor jumping-off point on how books are like people, moody, quick, perishable, frazzled at the edges, not to mention salty. So salty, in fact, that I now keep these poems in my spice rack. The recipe calls for sea salt. I just rub the pages briskly, and voila, nature weeps into my chowder. Lake Bonneville served up in a terrain, which makes me an organic cook a prophet of the sea. Also, a docent of love. Why? I took more than a book of poems to spiral jetty that morning. I took my beloved and kissed her where the jetty ends. One hand holding wet palms, the other stroking the small of her back. Vectors, vertigo, vortex. We settled into holding hands and greeted other pilgrims drawing near. In the end, aren't we all odes in search of other odes? devotees drawn to mysteries that turn in on themselves like a good trouble cloud, leaving us stranded, wet to the ankle in the middle of where we began.
0: So that was and a, uh,
7: that poet was Dean Young, of course.
0: Yeah, that was a book of salt. And I'll, I'll put on the screen. You're not going to be able to see this, uh, Lance, but I'm going to put for everybody at home, there's a picture of the spiral jetty oh, here that uh, everybody can see. And so that was underwater for a long time before the, uh, before the, 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 Water's Edge receded far enough for it to be shown again, and there's some people walking it in this photograph. Um, That was one of the things I wanted to ask about, because Lake Bonneville comes up a lot in your poems, which is interesting, because I find um, the topic of just whatever happened in North America 12,000 years ago you know, the Missoula floods and the dry falls and the extinction of the mammoths. I, I find that all fascinating. And so um, this is the first time I've ever seen Lake Bonneville come up in a collection of poems so much. Um, you know, this newer one has it, I think I've noticed like three or four times in uh, in What the Body Knows. Too often,
7: I probably should have... <laughs> You raced some of those,
0: references. but it's it's just so fascinating. What do you think? Uh, what do you think is interesting about about that? About the environment? Like one time you talk about um, hiking up into the hills, where you know it used to be underwater, even as you hike up. Um, yeah,
7: I suppose it's that we literally live about three or four blocks from where uh, the high point of, of Lake Bonneville is, and there's a place called the Lake Bonneville Trail. So I run there two or three times a week. So it's just fascinating to know that um, back 12,000 years, our house would be under 50 feet of water. And So I imagine that destruction every so often. Um, I don't know. I guess it's a way of bringing together uh, the local and um, the epic, epic geological time and the psychological altogether because it fascinates me that there could have been a body of water that big that was inland and great salt lake is just this tiny little puddle that's left from that, from those days.
0: Yeah. It's so fascinating. Like what it puts into perspective, like the context of our own lives to, to be walking through that environment um, and and to know how much has changed in, in, in the past. Um, um, Another thing I want to talk about um, is, is your Mormon faith. And, um, and, and, and how spirituality plays into poems. Because one of the things that I always feel like is um, uh, poetry is sort of a kind of prayer. Um, and these poems feel that way. They're sort of like the rhythm of maybe the King James Bible behind them. Um, you know, there's, there's that sort of like gravity um, that, that pulses through, maybe. Um, and so that feels prayer-like in a way that I think all poems kind of are. But these especially. Um, so how much does that play a role in, in what you do as a poet? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, certainly, um,
7: my religious upbringing and the King James Bible figure heavily. Um, but I'm also influenced by um, writers of a variety of faiths. So I love the the Buddhist California Buddhist poems and Jane Hirschfeld, for instance. Um, I studied with Adam Zagievsky, um, who I guess if you were to pen... Um, him to a creed, he would be a lapsed Catholic, same thing with uh, Chesua Miwosh, so writers like that. Um, I love Charles Wright, who once described himself as uh, a God-fearing non-believer. So once one has an encounter with the word on the page, I think creed and belief kind of go away, and what matters is the connection that you make with a poem regardless of the religious tradition. I love haiku for some of the same reasons. Um So when I sit down to write, I have a handful of poems that you could say are LDS or Mormon, uh, but the majority of them, I think, are more um, open-ended, right? Um, not so parochial. And I'm constantly trying to write a poem that would speak to a variety of readers, whether they have similar or very different religious, Uh, affiliations or not so i think poetry is a great melting pot right that it's uh, eucharistic in that sense um and so i just want to be a part of that conversation and i think sometimes if you speak only for your tribe or you speak for your tribe first the poetry usually suffers so i'm trying to tap into that that more universal um breaking of bread if you want to think of it that way
0: yeah, yeah, for sure. I always think of, you know, back to that, we were talking about the subconscious a little bit, but I always feel like it's subconscious is talking and, and like the details are sort of superficial to the, the things that we all have in common. So it, um, it's just always interesting to, to, to look at poetry that way. Um, do you, so, so how would you define poetry? Like, what is a poem? Um, you know, cause I, you know, there are a lot of different things people say. One of them is like a prayer. Um, but but how do you how do you conceive of a poem? What do you want it to do in the world? Like once it leaves your your pen or your computer and, and is in your book and it's out of your hands, what is the point of poetry?
7: Yeah, that's a great question.
0: Um, I always lean on other people's definitions,
7: uh, and one that I've come back to after you know encountering it as an undergrad uh, was Marianne Moore's definition that poetry is an imaginary garden with real toads in them poems are, I'm getting it a little wrong, but the poem is an imaginary garden with real toads in it. Uh, I love that mix of things, right? The fact that it's not real, or it doesn't have to be autobiographical or factual, but it has to be um, tethered to the page, stapled to the the page by things that are real. Um, So I hope what could happen with you know, even if it wasn't an entire poem, but a a fragment of a poem, that someone 20 years from now or 100 or 100, 200 years from now could translate it into another language. And it would have a kind of freshness to that other reader. Um, certainly that's how, um, poems from the Renaissance speak or translations of ancient haiku, whatever the case might be. I just, I just love that, um, you can have these ongoing conversations with poets who are hundreds of years dead and there's their poems are still alive in the mouth of the reader. So I, w- I would hope it would have that some of my work would have that ability.
0: Yeah. I always go back to that. Uh, we, when talking to A.E. Stalling. she said that, that the classics felt more modern than uh, modern poetry. Sure. <laughs> and I, and I just think about that all the time. Cause it's so true uh, that, you know, that we're just human beings and we all have these experiences and go through life and, and um and can share that and and participate in a dialogue about it um let's hear another poem i want to make sure we get enough poems in
7: sure so this one um is the one that appeared in rattle last fall and also i ran is, is the title i wheedled a 10 minute visit from the night nurse this was friday the evening after my best friend hurtled through a windshield at 70 miles per hour The day before I drove to a numbing family reunion for blue-haired ants. He had a machine to count his breaths, a tube to collect his pee, and a pair of legs that would never again shuffle or glide or dance. Every six hours, his striker bed flipped him like a flapjack, stomach down for now, with a cutout for his face. So I sprawled on the floor. Days before, we'd lain on grass, close to sleeping bags, counting stars and girlfriends we didn't have. Tonight, more of the same bowl, and less. His chin and my dirty shoes trading gossip, the 87 stitches on his back playing hard to get, and the moon outside skinny dipping in the fountain. I was 15 plus four months. My friend was 15 plus blood all over the Ford Bronco, even on the road, even on trees, he said. Promise me that you'll definitely check out the crash site. And I said, no. Not one part of me wants to see blood on trees. Before leaving, I counted stitches on my friend's bad shoulder and touched his good one, warmish, like when you put your arm around a girl at a matinee. And the hum of machines was a prayer to healing. And the dirty tiles were a prayer to grit. And the intern was a ten-fingered prayer to vitals and charts. And my friend saying, hey, man, later, was Amen. Outside, the sprinkler sputtered and hissed and did a silvery dance with the grass. The stars tried to go all the way with sleeping cars, and the dark said, What is this, amateur hour? I broke into a run then, sliding through chain link to an endless empty parking lot. With so many overhead lights, I had three shadows at once, like three wavery souls. When I ran, they moved, one pinning me to pavement, one sliding off like oily water one being born up ahead. What did I care? When I closed my eyes, they went away, just a buzzing breeze in these slabs called legs doing their work. They didn't want to run. My lungs pushed them, my slippery, beating heart, and my friend's catheter leaking amber bubbles into a room. 514. Who needed a soul or the disappearing shadow of a soul? Breath was enough and hurrying blood Provided it stayed inside. Nine thirty at night, the day after and the day before, a clean, brisk, heavy, terrifying, innocent Friday in June. I ran and ran, and also I ran.
0: That was and also I ran from Rattle Number Seventy, a Rattle Poetry Prize. Finalist, and i probably shouldn't tell you how much we agonized over which poems to pick (laughs) there were three at the top that was one of them um the one that became the reader's choice award the sonnet farm sonnet was another and then um and the one that won the um uh, allison townsend's poem but um all three it was it was the best top three i think we've had in a long time at least um so i don't know that's probably not a good thing to hear (laughs) but uh but it it was i mean i just love that poem um the 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 freshness of the images and the way that, um, the emotions pulls through it. Um, how, how long did that poem take to write? Was that a poem that you were revising and writing for a very long time? Cause it was an event that happened a good long time ago.
7: Um, I, I think I've wanted to write that poem for a long time, but hadn't known how there were two facts that came through. One, my best friend was in this accident and was paralyzed at the time. We didn't know for how long, um, And I had to sit on the floor to talk to him, you know, face to face, so to speak. And then um, afterwards, um, I either got dropped off or I had walked there, but I had to walk home, but I couldn't walk. I had to run. It was in honor of him or to prove that I still could run. I I don't know. It was this really strange compulsion. And so those two facts side by side have existed in the back of my, my my head for a long time, and I wanted to do justice to them. Um, early drafts of this went nowhere because I was simply repeating what happened. It was just prosy. So I had to find a kind of poetic language that wasn't precious, but also sort of separated this out from the mundane everyday. And so I resorted to metaphor and to this kind of sort of back and forth joshing of friends right there's a kind of irreverence to it and that was the only way that i could find to counterbalance uh, the tendency of the poem to be too earnest or too precious mm-hmm. so that that was a struggle trying to find a language that would do justice to um my confusion
0: yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense And and you know that that you know not knowing why you ran that that mystery that that you know, something that doesn't quite add up. It's really the heart of so many poems, um, you know, right. trying to figure out what that thing that had special meaning really was, you know, and, and why that it did. So that, I think that's what makes it a great poem. In addition to so many, like just the descriptions of um, the lights, I remember talking about that at our meeting, about how well that was described, uh, running through the parking lot with the different shadows cast on the ground. Um, let's hear, we have a time, like 10 minutes left. So, um, do you want to do like a poem and then a couple more questions then another poem? Sure. That would be good a good way to close it out.
7: Um, so this one that I'm going to read uh, is a pantoum, which is the one that won last year's contest. I have to confess that I, I love the pantoum. I've written probably four or five of them. It's uh, It has some of the attractions of sestinas and villanelles, but it's more forgiving. And so <laughs> uh, I sort of migrate toward what I don't know, the possible. Um, that's all I'll say about it. A uh, Dutch woman riding a tandem by herself at night. In darkness, sorry, is darkness her escort? Is she ferrying God? Nothing behind her but a scrape of wind. Ghost petals pedaling under a brimming sky. Tomorrow my mother will be dead one year. Nothing behind her but a scrape of wind. An orphan on vacation, a son heavy with home. Tomorrow, my mother will be dead one year. This empty seat a reminder, this freeze of rain. An orphan on vacation, a son heavy with home. I carry stories disguised as Gouda and bread. This empty seat a reminder, this freeze of rain. I forgot the bananas, should I buy more tea? I carry stories disguised as Gouda and bread. She has turned the corner, vanishing into mist. I forgot the bananas. Should I buy more tea? The canal burbles on, all pearl and slosh. She has turned a corner, vanishing into mist. Is a man waiting, a child with a broken arm? The canal burbles on, all pearl and slosh. A glistening hymn, all hum, all the way home. Is a man waiting, a child with a broken arm? Ghost petals pedaling under a brimming sky. A glistening hymn, all hum. All the way home, is darkness her escort? Is she ferrying God?
0: And that was uh, a Dutch woman riding a tandem by herself at night. Um, another new poem by uh, Lance Larson. I wanted to talk a little bit we haven't yet about being poet laureate in Utah, and uh, you were you were in that post for five years, which is a pretty long length for a, for a poet laureate ship. Um, what was your experience like? Like, what was it like being like? the poet for your state, the the people I go to, you know, and, and, and what, what did you do while you were, um, in that post? Well, from the
7: outside, uh, the task or the the opportunity to be a poet laureate seems really romantic, but (laughs) what you find is that it's mostly boots on the ground. Uh, you are representing poetry or literature or art for the state. And so, um, the most challenging, but also the most satisfying um, experiences came in visiting K through 12 classrooms and talking poetry to a lot of kids that didn't want to hear about it, right? And so I'm constantly like campaigning, uh, sort of uh, just, I had my bully pulpit, but I had to draw these writers in and they didn't care about me as a poet, they didn't care about my poems. Uh, So that was uh, really finally an invigorating thing because it was just poetry how do you sell these kids on, on on this art form and the opportunity to uh, express themselves. So um, it was always a change up, you know, something different every month. Uh, I also worked pretty closely with poetry out loud, which is the national recitation contest. Um, I helped to judge that, or I would at least uh, participate as kind of an MC. And it was great to see um, what, um, High school students were capable of, and to see that breaking of the bread—I mentioned that earlier—to um, hear these poems that I had loved for so long, um, whether it was Theodore Rutke or Elizabeth Bishop or you know Blake, whoever it might be—and see what they did with them, um, how they performed them, and how they became new—that's um, what is—that's what was most exciting
0: about it. Mm-hmm. And, and did you learn like anything about like? poetry's position in society or anything from doing that i mean like most of us like like poetry i feel like i'm in this little corner you know and there's this you know little audience that likes what we do and we have a subscribers but compared to anybody like just in my like my town is five thousand people there's like 10 that care (laughs) right you know and so um confronting confronting that as the poet laureate is a different thing that that than most people experience as a poet you know like we get to just sort of live and enjoy our niche did you learn anything from being outside the niche
7: well I, I learned maybe this is an obvious thing to say but the power of one teacher who cares about poetry um, because i would be invited into classrooms by those teachers not by the, the the teachers who aren't teaching poetry right and it was remarkable to see the effect that that enthusiasm and that knowledge had on an entire classroom of students. I'm thinking specifically of one woman who taught a fifth grade class, and she would give them tasks and assignments, and they'd write up their poems, and then she would put them on a a bulletin board, and they were on display for weeks, and anybody could come by and read these. And when I came for that visit, they were so primed for the visit, they were so talented, I don't know what the long-term effect of that is but it has to be uh a really uh positive one. So that was exciting to see I think just the enthusiasm and commitment of individual teachers
0: around the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and so last question and then uh, one last poem. But uh but what are you working on now? Like what is your next book? We have half the poems that you're reading today are from um something that isn't out yet. Um, well, so so what do you um what are you working on?
7: It's uh Another collection, the title is tentatively Making a Kingdom of It, which is taken from a very short poem uh, that was published in Five Points about a year ago. Um, and it's all lineated. I don't think there are any prose poems in it. Um, so we'll see how that goes. I mean, it's, not, it's not finished, but I think it's in decent shape. We'll see mm-hmm. what happens. So,
0: do you have a? I think you have five books, so it's a few several years between books. Um, right. How, how many poems do you have written that, that haven't gone into books? Like, do you, do you, are you one of those poets who has a lot of poems that just don't see the light of day in a huge drawer? Or do you yeah. like work and work on, on certain things until they're ready?
7: I have a lot of poems in drawers, um, or rather on my computer somewhere. A lot of them don't even get to the point where they're printed out. Mm -hmm. I usually don't print out poems until I'm ready to take them to my writing group. So I probably, this is what I say. I start 10 poems, finish two or three, publish one. I don't know if those are the exact ratios, but I start a lot of things because I don't know what's going to turn out. Um, And so I kind of have to have this dialogue with the poem and keep pushing it, see if it's worth, you know, more time and see where it goes. And, And then you send things out and some of them come, most of them come back. And so it's a winnowing process constantly. You live with a poem and figure out which poem has lags, which ones to let go. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And you mentioned a writing group, just one last thing since you mentioned a writing group, what is is your writing group like? Like how often do you meet? How long have you been meeting with the same people? Um...
7: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Right now I'm in two writing groups, but one that concentrates on poetry meets weekly. Uh, there are four of us, um, and one of the the senior member has been in this group for probably 30 years, and I've been in the group with her for 27 or 28 years, and lately we just meet by Zoom, as unlikely as that may seem, and we all bring a fresh poem. Uh, we send it out in advance, and we only takes us about an hour. We workshop. It's really efficient, and it's the right mix of encouragement and productive critique.
0: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, and it's great because I know I have to have a poem ready uh, this week by <laughs> Tuesday at 12 o'clock. Yeah, so.
0: exactly. Yeah. That, that seems like the real benefit is just having like a deadline um, yeah. and having a reason to not put it up, something off for a week. You know, it, it's really important. And hopefully uh, everybody can find, you know, at home can find that kind of group somewhere. Yeah. Uh, well, do you want to finish out with one last poem?
7: Yeah, I'll read one last one. Uh, This one is called Happiness Memo. Uh, It was written during the pandemic uh, last fall. I don't think the pandemic uh, shows up, but I think you can feel the sort of uh, topsy-turvy, upside-down world that's implied by that. A lot of things are happening to us simultaneously, and I think the narrator, someone quite a bit like me, doesn't quite know what to make of things. It's called Happiness Memo. Meanwhile, crazy neighbor one has a gun range, bang, bang, in his basement. And crazy neighbor two is chopping down pines to make room for pickleball. Meanwhile, it's early October, late afternoon. Nothing I can do about it, so I lie down on my lawn and move my legs and arms as if it were Christmas, and I was inflicting a brave snow angel on my grass. Meanwhile, gads of geese angle south in little triangles of travel. Meanwhile, sky... Meanwhile, I'm tired. When does daylight savings end? I need that lost hour. Meanwhile, my daughter chocks a box on the drive and her cat climbs in, trapped in a spell of her own broken purrs. Meanwhile, leaves like letters fall from on high, each an invitation to an invisible palm. Meanwhile, the snake parting grass like the Red Sea thinks croquet hoops are part of its pilgrimage. Meanwhile, my friend texts, to say her liver cancer is the good kind of terminal, Selah, and invites us to dinner, Selah, and now the sun relaxes all over me, legs, belly, chest, and creeps across my neck to lick my face, and a tow-headed kid rides by on a trike, his second lap, pumpkin painted under one eye, skull under the other, and shoots me
0: with his finger to save me the trouble, Selah, of getting back up. Excellent. Lance Larson, that was Happiness Memo. Thanks so much for being a guest tonight, Lance. It's just a pleasure to experience your poetry and, and talk about it.
7: Well, thanks for the opportunity. This was great.
0: Yeah, have a good night. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. It was uh, Lance Larson with Happiness Memo. You can find the uh, link to his most recent book um, at uh, in the show notes. But his most recent book, of course, is What the Body Knows. Let me uh, put that on screen for you. Right there. What the Body Knows. Um, and that is available from the University of Tampa Press. So uh, find that in the link in the show notes wherever you're watching this. Uh, that's the book of prose poems. Another book is coming up in the not-too-distant future, I bet. And uh, now we're going to move on to the open lines. And let me, before we uh, do that, let me just tell you how it works one last time. Um, if you haven't yet, email the poem to openmike at like you see on the screen. Um, and then once you do that, that way I can show it to everybody at home, which is a nice benefit of having this technology. Um, and then either f- either pick one or the other, either phone 818-850-7727. Just let it ring a few times and hang up. I will call you back when the time is right. Um, otherwise, you can do it over Skype in a video call. Just find me in the chat, when, in the uh, search bar under rattle poetry, say hi, I'll like wave back or whatever. And then uh, it'll be your turn when it's your turn. And... Um, now, I'm going to stand up and take a little break again. Um, before I do, I'll tell you who next week's guest is. Next week's guest is going to be Win Cooper. Um, Win Cooper is the uh, author of his most recent book. You see on the screen here is uh, Mars Poetica. Um, he's most known for um, one of the most, probably literally the most read poem in the history of uh, modern English because uh, his poem, Fun, became that Cheryl Crow song. All I want to do is have some fun. And uh, so we'll talk to him about that. I'm curious about how that came to be. It was a poem from the late 80s. Uh, I think the songwriter found it in a bookstore or something like that. So we'll learn more about that. But even before I knew that detail about Win Cooper, I just loved his book Postcards from the Interior. Um, so we'll talk about that book too. We sent a bunch of books over. Um, that's Win Cooper on Rattlecast number 98. And um, it's going to be a early show, so we're going to have most of the shows going to be at this time, 9 p.m. Eastern time. But sometimes we're going to have an early show because of different scheduling issues and stuff. So uh, Wynn had to do an earlier show, and it's going to be noon Eastern time, uh, 9 a.m. Pacific. We'll start out with Poetry Respond live as always. Then we'll do uh, talk to Win for an hour. Then we'll do open lines. So that is next Sunday, June 20th. I'm going to take a really quick break, get the uh, open lines stuff set up, and I will be right back. Back, thanks so much for your patience. Now this week's prompt was to put it on screen. Was to write a (laughs) pivotal, 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 a pivotal moment in your childhood. And um, now my pivotal moment. I think you've uh, you've heard. We wrote some poems about how I'm estranged from my father. This pivotal moment. I tried to write a really brief, short kind of poem this week. This was sort of the. The little nudge that started that process along for the very first time and um, here we go this is uh, my poem for the week reflection how life turns like the light around a corner as i stood in the hall after closing the door Having forgotten my keys, a ghost in the shadows. Watching my father's ghost in the glass. Find my brother's report card right there on his desk full of papers. Then bending, pretending it had been in the trash before shouting up the stairs, you little shit, you thought you could hide this from me? My short little poem, uh, Reflection, uh, based on a pivotal pivotal moment in my childhood. And here is uh, Megan's poem. Another Megan poem. This is uh, At the You Fish Indoor Pond. We rented a flimsy pole, and though the pond was just a pit of gray water, the tug I felt was first thrilling. I am so strong, something resists me. And then, terrifying, when I reeled in what was just a feeling, and saw it was a life, blank-eyed, all reflexes, but still a life, dwindling quick, the terrible flopping that I knew, even at six, meant death. And my dad was elated. You did it! You did it! But I begged him to throw it back into that teeming stew. And he didn't understand, but he concealed, conceded. Let it slip limply from his wet hands. And I held my breath, but it only floated. And though we left with nothing to show for what we did, on the car ride home, everything smelled like dead fish. That is uh, Megan's prompt home for this week. The U-Fish Indoor Pond. And uh, now it is your time to share poems. Uh, we have a 503 number, which I'll get to next. I'm just going to remind everybody, when I call, make sure you turn off the uh, stream in your background and just talk to me through the phone, because there's, there's a delay, otherwise it's confusing. So for uh, first-time callers, which I think this 503 number is, just make sure you do that. Um, let's see, we have um, Angela Garner... Richard Westheimer, Joyce Stahl, Carla Schwartz, Nivedita Karthik, this 503 number. Um, we have a poem. Let's see. We have a poem from Bill Friedman again. Uh, and Canon McAfee. Maybe that's the 503 number, Canon. So um, so if you'd like to share, um, please do go ahead and start that now. And Spartacus is coming up, too. So we have a bunch of people ready for the open lines. I'll just go in the order they were received. And the first person here to ask was Angela Gartner. Let's call up Angela. Hey Angela, let me pull oh, you I'm in.
4: You <laughs>
8: in the video today, though?
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, no problem at all. It's a non-video day. Those are good days too. Um, what did you want to share today?
8: Um, I wanted to share my um, the poem for poets respond. Uh huh. Um, protection from Unwanted Visitors.
0: Okay, well, why don't you uh, explain what that's about while I pull it up.
8: Okay, well, um, the Poets Respond The poets respond poem mm-hmm. was about, in California, there was um, a bunch of birds, actually. Um, I think they're called the Algren. I, I'm never going to be able to pronounce the name, so... <laughs> But basically what happened was is that a drone crashed into their ner- their nesting site. So what happened was is that it they basically fled it because birds don't typically leave a nesting site easily. Hold on, no, I hear myself in the background, so I'm gonna shut myself off. Okay. <laughs> I I but anyway, ne- they don't leave it easily but you know there was since the pandemic has been going on there was a lot more people kind of in that area and then maybe the drone kind of made it where they just decided I'm gonna leave so they left around like it was like 15 to 2,000 eggs in the sand and a whole generation of these seabirds aren't gonna be born um basically because they're all gone
0: yeah, we see this picture on the screen. That is a lot. Are those eggs in the picture? I think those are yeah, eggs. Those... That is so sad. I mean, yeah, that, that those... is thousands of eggs. 3,000 eggs, it says. Yeah.
8: Well, I think the Alley Times got that wrong. I don't think it was as many, but it was like around 2,000 eggs that were abandoned mm-hmm. by these seabirds. So basically, they usually come every year. You know, they come to that place to be safe and, and to nest and. Basically, they just, they just left because of the human disturbance. <laughs> so I just, I was just thinking like as a mom, you know, it's just, it's just sad. And I actually, this is a real story. They're a blue jay. Like I, I know there's a blue jay like in our tree and, but, and I, I've seen them nesting. I've seen their little babies And then one day they just like this, I I went outside and he was like swooping at my head. (laughs) He was not a happy bird. And and I think it had a lot to do with, you know, it was nesting season for them and they did not want me around. And I mean, they're, you know, we don't realize how much we interact with wildlife Mm -hmm. and, how much we can disturb them because you know they can't talk to us and tell them, hey, get out of you know, you know. We just have to learn to interact better with them. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, here living in the woods, there's a lot of interaction. Uh, the ground squirrels have come out with their babies, you know, and the bunnies and the. There's a bird that attacks the mirror in our car just constantly. He thinks it's another bird, like trying to steal his woman or something. Oh no! <laughs> and so he'll like peck at his own reflection. And we have to put a a net or like a towel or something over the the side mirror, you know, so that this bird doesn't break our car. So, uh, I don't know. Happens all the time. But let's hear this. Protection from unwanted visitors.
8: Protection from unwanted visitors. Here's some advice. When a blue jay attacks you, his beak is open wide as he's dive bombing. So duck your head and move from side to side. The bird did give me a warning from the wooden fence. He was squawking loudly and made everyone jump. I knew his kin was nearby, hidden in the column trees. He was disturbed by the spinning of the small wings and hums of the engine cylinders. A neighbor across the street was flying a remote control drone. My son chuckled when the plane sputtered to the ground. He went back to thumping his skateboard on the pavement, watch me, watch me land this alley. I looked at him and thought about the eggs in the sand. They were silently waiting for their mother's warm feathers, listening for high-pitched songs and rhythm with the ocean waves. They were alone when melting in the grains of abandonment. My son, born in turbulence, his hair was wet from the sun rays. I know he will leave me one day, like the blue jays' chicks, but I'm not a bird who feels threatened when my nest is hit.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Angela. That turn to your own son, really touching. I like that a lot.
8: Thank you. So, a great show tonight, by the way, as usual. So, well, I, I pre. This time, this I always think this show's going to start at five thirty, but I'm like, oh yeah, it's eight o'clock. So <laughs> okay, but yeah. thank you so much, Sam. Yeah, no Thanks. problem.
0: Sorry, I think I might say sometimes the time here instead of the time in other time zones. It's so confusing, but uh, hopefully we get it worked out. Thanks, Angela. <laughs> thank you. Good night. Bye bye. is Angela Gartner with uh, protection from unwanted visitors. Uh, we have uh, now. Let's do this five o three who um i think it's a first time caller so let's do this first time caller at 503 see who that is hey this is tim from metal and you are live on the air who am i talking to
6: well it's canon McAfee.
0: i thought so yeah so glad you could join us
6: Well, thank you tim um this was a, a good prompt um and uh The first thing that came to mind, I I thought, oh, no, I don't want to write about that. (laughs) But then when I gave it a chance and stuck with it, um, I was glad that I did. So here goes.
0: Yeah, go ahead, whenever you are ready.
6: He gave me the belt. Dad wanted me to beat him. That hard yellow slip marked detention for three demerits in class first burned the air between us, the opposite of gold. Then he handed me his belt, and I stood a frozen seventh grade son of a seventh son in a closed side room of the church gymnasium with the principal, my father, on all fours. He wouldn't get up, but he raised his voice like a fist over and over urging me to do it, to swing at his guilt or mine, I did not know. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. For talking in class at 13. Retention. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image I could not engrave upon his flesh. Ye shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead. Part of my faith died in that room. God is love. But did he hug me when it was over? What I remember is I could not turn love into pain. Pain into love was unable... To do anything but cry, I can't. A cleaving command still in my right hand.
0: Powerful poem and tough story. Thanks so much for sharing that. He gave me the belt. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, thank you. That was uh, Kanan McAfee with He Gave Me the Belt. Let me add Kanan to our uh, call list so we know his number next time. And uh, then we'll move on to the next poet. That yeah, was a powerful poem. He gave me the belt. Um this was a that was a tough prompt, I thought. Um a lot of difficult topics when you look back at your at pivotal moments in your childhood. A lot of stuff comes up. Let's see. Um let me go although well, you know what, I'm gonna read um uh, Bill Friedman's poem. Um Bill says, Um I can't make the rattle cast, it's time. So I'm saying this poem, if you could read it for me, I have tinnitus, and along with leaves rustling, steam hissing, one of the many sounds I hear whenever I pay attention is the mating call of cicadas. I've written a number of poems about that experience. This is perhaps my favorite, for obvious what you might call family reasons, a regrettably belated and much too late note of appreciation and gratitude. Uh, cicadas are infesting now, so while I can't claim this is mainly a poem about cicadas, they enter meaningfully at the end. Anyway, here's this poem, and uh, it was Taking It In, about cicadas and tinnitus. Here we go. Taking It In. Mine was a nervous mother, anxious, fearful. Wouldn't let me have a bicycle. I'd ride it in the street, be run over, crippled, killed. Wouldn't let me stay out late. She'd have to wait here by the window. Wouldn't sleep, knowing I'd be mugged. More likely kidnapped, murdered. Even visiting her for a week or more at 30, she begged me not to come home after 9. When I asked at 40 if I could take her car to meet a girlfriend 50 miles away, she begged me not to. I'd get lost, wouldn't find my girlfriend, or the way back home. I've never known a bicycle, or stayed out late, and didn't meet my lover, or make love to her that night. But my God, how that other woman, keeping anxious vigil at a window somewhere, loved me i know you're thinking i mistake a stifling clenched possessiveness for love but i knew love when i felt it and i felt it then feel it now like a surplus lung aorta or reticulum of arteries and veins available if the originals break down out there from certain trees particularly white pine and maple that seem reluctant at my touch to let me pass and jagged bursts of yellow light that wink through leaves when I look up, because she did. I believe mosquitoes want my blood, because the word is out, they've heard. Cicadas, every mating season, rub their washboard bellies in the branches, sing for love and wait in hungry silence for an answer. I recognize their song, they're calling me. That was William Friedman with Taking It In, um, for the open mic right now. Um, thanks, Bill, and uh, next week you can come on live again because we're doing the early show. So that's one of the nice things about flopping back and forth between times. The uh, the unpleasant thing is that it's hard to keep track of when we're doing it if we do it, but uh, mostly it'll be 9 p.m. I mean 8 p.m. Eastern, um, sometimes noon, though. Okay, let me see who else we have. Let's call up next. Um, let's call up Richard Westheimer. I think he is next in line. And Richard has a prop poem and a... Uh, Poet spawn poem as well good evening richard how are you doing tonight
7: good
2: i'm gonna to have to get this calendar thing straight going back <laughs> and forth and back and forth
0: i know i know but i mean we used to do it before i just we, we're having more international poets on though lately for some reason Oh, which is so, great so, and yeah. uh and, and win just couldn't make a late night sunday so, so that's different but but we're having um i don't know just a bunch of people from from overseas and, and so you got to do it early um but anyway, what did you want to share? We have a, a poet's prompt poem and a prompt poem. Which one do you want to do first?
2: Um, I'll do uh, the order, the poets, uh, the prompt, poets respond poem, which is called decryption. And very briefly, there was a um, story about the criminals who were got passed around these encrypted uh, devices, and just kind of sat on it for a while and. Um, Walked up to my room one night and heard the encrypted sounds outside my window. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah,
0: Interesting. Okay, go ahead whenever you're ready. I'll put it Okay, up.
2: this is called Decryption. I assume my phone is compromised, hacked into by an enforcement regime determined to intercept my dreams, maybe make sense of my agitation. If the sleuths tuned in to the messages that pass through my bedroom window, these humid nights encoded among the creatures of the dark hours. They'd make out the glottal grunts of pond frogs. Hear the skunk rustle my unmown grass. Note a horned owl hoot, each creature seeking consort in the shadows. The eavesdroppers might catch me hooting back, conclude I spoken riddles, would scan their code books to see what secrets I share unaware that I was just brooding over what's absent, the old ciphers of muggy summers, cricket chirps, the silent flashes of fireflies, June bugs bumbling off my mesh screen, mayflies sorcerate on the wall above my bed. In the before times, before the organophosphate wars, before the great warming, before so much went missing here, if a G-man overheard that long-ago ruckus and his decryption device bore real divining power, he'd have thrown down his headphones, run through the streets shouting, stop the madness or else the end is nigh. By stop, he'd mean listen. By madness, he'd mean murder. And by the end, he'd mean the end.
0: Excellent poem, atmospheric. It reminds me my uh my high school or college roommate works for the NSA and he uh he thinks that that decryption the the, the ability to, to encrypt things is like a temporary stage in society and yeah. uh, eventually we'll be uh having an air gap like in uh Battlestar Galactica and you won't do anything unless there's an air gap so that's mm. uh <laughs> so that 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 brings that to mind um, okay, let's hear the, the other poem, the prop poem. Yeah.
2: Well, as as with some of the others, it it uh I don't have a lot of childhood memories, so this one was sort of like like therapy, you know, like sit down and wonder, you know, what what what, what happened.
0: Well that, that's Why don't why don't you have many childhood memories?
2: I don't know. Just I doesn't... actually looked, looked this up on the internet. What characterized people who have don't have childhood memories? And part of it is Um, I think I was sort of like emotionally stunted and Hmm. emotions and memory are very close together.
0: Interesting. Which is
2: one of the reasons why girls who are sort of like at least bred in our society to recognize emotions have tend to have more childhood memories because Hmm. they have more emotional connections. That's really interesting.
0: I never heard that before.
2: Yeah. Well, I was curious what makes me so weird. (laughs) So, (laughs) So I did remember this after a while. Flashback boys school. The woman who ruined me inhabited a windowless room at the end of a long hall. The sign on the nicked wood door read special tutoring. Inside by my memory was cave dark with fixtures barely seen by the light leaked from the machines meant to speed my reading. Two left scars. One illuminated by the kind of lamp used to interrogate suspects, flashed words so fast I could not catch up. Trapped, fear, flight, focus. Each would appear just long enough for me to know I did not know. After my failing and failing and failing, the woman who ruined me would fire up a device that scrolled a curtain down, covering lines of text faster and faster and faster than I could read. This was meant to spur me to go, 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 but all it did was race my heart and make me wonder. What went on in the shiny world outside the door? Were the boys cracking jokes about me, the retard? Were they discussing the great books with Mr. Pat? Did I miss lunchtime or a party, or had the whole school become some phantasmagoric candy cane carnival? I emerge, blink back the bright world sparkling for a moment then the red pencil marks that slash my essays return the d's and f's return the unread books piled in my locker and the ones sagging my book bag return and the boys just ignore me no taunts no nothing i wonder now how poetry trapped for so long ever escaped that room
0: oh wow good poem richard flashback to boys school um, it's tough looking back. <laughs> our, yeah, our childhood isn't it? kind of. <laughs> <Yeah>. Well, we
2: <laughs> yeah. we 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 are what those are those things that made us. It's...
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we definitely are. What doesn't kill us makes us stronger, right? <laughs> yeah, or something like yeah, that. Something Put that like in a that. poem sometime. <laughs> okay, okay. Good night, good night, Richard. Thanks for sharing those. Uh, Richard Westheimer with a with a flashback to boys' school and a P.R. poem. Uh, Carlos Schwartz is next up. And then uh, Spartacos, who else do we have? And Joy Stahl, too. So it's three left for the open lines right now. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you doing?
9: I am doing very well tonight. Thank you very much. And it's definitely dark as night here.
0: Yeah, are you you still doing the the houseboat stuff? Or are you uh,
6: in a permanent abode? we, we,
9: We, no, well, what we call... We do what we call going out to dinner very Uh often, which means that we step onto our houseboat and take it out into the middle of the lake and um, heat up the food in the microwave or cook it in our kitchen in the houseboat. And then we um, have a nice, lovely dinner and then come back to a house that's on an island in Uh Lake Winnipesaukee. Oh, that's great. just did that this evening.
0: Very nice.
9: So... Okay, so I'm going to read you my poem called Astronaut.
0: Okay, and this is a prompt poem, right?
9: It's a prompt poem, and it was a prompt poem some months ago when we there was like an astronaut prompt. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> so, yeah,
0: okay. Well, there we well, go. <laughs> well, yeah, let's see what so you this came up it. with.
9: Another version of it. Astronaut. When I crossed the street, my blue umbrella hooked between my fingers, Gina not caring that I didn't show at her house while her mother cooked cornbread in the kitchen. I was excited about to bring the umbrella that I, I was excited to bring the umbrella that I might drop in like Mary Poppins from the sky as I stepped into the street. The steel grill, a a Chevy, a brand new Nova kissed my ear smacked my head, ejected me to land in a sea of our driveway. All I knew at first, I couldn't stand up, couldn't walk. Later, knowledge of damaged nerves emerged, a capsule in the ocean. At three, how could I know a car could do that, steal my hearing, keep me from becoming an astronaut?
0: Oh, wow. Thanks for sharing that, Carla. Another. Oh, thank you, Tim. Have a good night. You too. Good night. Bye-bye. There's Carla Shorts with her astronaut poem from a few uh, episodes back. And um, let's see, where did Joy... Uh, Here's Joy Stahl. Let's call up Joy. Good evening, Joy. How are you doing tonight? All right. Uh, And what did you want to share? Uh, I have
4: the the childhood memory prompt, and I won't spoil it, but I will say that uh, I discarded a lot of different ones before (laughs) before I settled on one that I wanted to actually write about.
0: Okay, well, let's hear it.
4: All right. Pay attention. I can still see the room when I let my mind wander back. Beige walls, 60s couch and chair... TV screen nestled in a wooden cabinet, balanced on legs, which now reminds me of the Jetsons. My dad turns on the TV, picks up my one-year-old self, then settles into the chair. He balances me on his knee and points at the television. Pay attention. Remember this. We are watching history happen. In later middle age, when I commented to him of this, my earliest memory, Dad no longer remembered saying those words to me, but I remember, as vividly as yesterday, Apollo 11 and Eagle landing on Earth's moon.
0: Yeah, great memory there. Pay attention. Thanks so much, uh, Joy. Thank you. Good night. Good night. That's Joy Stahl with Pay Attention. And uh, next up, I think, um, let me just remind you if you'd like to call in. The number is 818 or send me a chat message over Skype. Uh, but I think we have our last caller here it is going to be Spartacos agnostris So let's call up Spartacos. You know, I should call Spartacos first. I should call him early because he's, uh, it's like 3 a.m. or something in uh, the UK where he is. And maybe he fell asleep. I wouldn't blame him if he did. Okay, I think... Uh not sure if Spartacus is here, but it is so late where he is. So I will uh, give Spartacus a second. because I'm going <clears> to... <throat> Let's share. You know what I'm going to do? I will share a random poem, and then we'll see if Spartacus uh, replies really quick, and then I'll just read him for him. If not, this is... Uh, I just pushed the random button here, and uh, this is the poem that popped up. This is Andrea Defoe, uh, For a Piano Abandoned in the Bread Basket. And this is a poem from rattle number 28. Um, and about Andrea, she says, I must've been about 15 in the middle of a forest when I happened upon grave, a gravestone inscribed outward sunshine, inward joy, blessings on thee, barefoot boy. I was amazed at how the right lines in the right place could elicit a gut response from me. And that was her uh, paragraph about why she writes poems. And here is her poem that we published in Rattle number 28, uh, a piano a band for a pa- for a piano abandoned in the bread basket. Perhaps it was too heavy for the horses to haul it all the way west, or something else just mattered more. Maybe someone was jealous of how the girl played it, as if sweet little veries were flying out her fingertips, snow white of the new frontier. Maybe she hated it, but probably it was her favorite thing and alone, nights nothing to smother the hollering silence she rocked herself "'and thought of her piano gathering snow, "'envisioned the prairie rodents "'catching their food between its wires, "'elk nosing the keys in a song so random "'they could only think of it like thunder. "'Maybe some Indian had found it and grasped its beauty, "'hauled it home to pay his dowry. "'But in the best of these dreams, "'she was sleeping and the piano's legs came to life. "'This didn't frighten her. "'She'd always known her piano was alive "'and worked its sunken heels out of the soil, "'began to march,' then trot in the path of the last wheels to pass this way till one wind-rattled night she'd hear a peculiar tap and find it there in the dark waiting for her to make it sing. And that was Andrew Defoe with for a piano abandoned in the breadbasket. And, um, let's see. Uh, so Spartacus texted me. He, uh, uh, the internet connection just isn't good. It says, A letter to the fairy of a tree. And that was, um, Spartacus's prompt poem. So here that comes. Uh, letter to the Fairy of a Tree. That sta- um, beautiful fairy of a tree That stands near to the sea You are my lucky tooth fairy Your heart smells rosemary Revising all the ex- exercises yesterday For my exams I felt headache with so many diagrams But I knew I my wish was more worthy than painkillers because your tree was cocooned in silk woven by caterpillars. I was brave to sing before I tied to my tooth a string. I made my wish while tying the other end to a door that I tried to befriend. Then I closed my eyes and waited for the breeze to shut the door. I counted up to 100 before my tooth fell on the floor. I was scared of physics and I did not want to fail again. I didn't want to put a post-it note on the freezer before my weekend how to avoid explaining to my parents the bad news and ask for ice cream in a way that they could not refuse. Plus, I needed time for cycling in the mud to listen to the song of a frog on a water lily or a flower bud. My fairy, I promised not to fall in the swamp and I promised not to return back by following a duck. Today, my little fairy scored 100% and everything I knew was because of you. A little turn there at the end. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was uh, Spartacus and Agnostris once again with a letter to the fairy of a tree. And um, now we are going to uh, put up the prompt for this week. And the prompt for this week is going to be right here. Not right there, right here. Uh, Macro photography is the close up, highly detailed photograph of small objects or organisms. Common subjects include an inch wing or a blade of grass. Write a macro poem. And then Megan put macro poem in quotation marks. So I think you're, you can interpret that however you'd like. Uh, maybe there's a, an unusual way to uh, write a macro poem, or maybe it's just a ephrastic type poem on a macro photography image. Um, it'll be interesting to see how everybody interprets that and how I interpret that. I don't know what I'm going to do with that. But that is your prompt for this next week, uh, written by Megan, as always. And uh, next guest uh, next week, again, is going to be Wynn Cooper. Uh, Win Cooper is uh, the author most recently of Mars Poetica, but he's the author of a whole bunch of books. Um, and, of course, he's famous for uh, his poem, Fun, becoming a big Cheryl Crow, like, platinum record um, and uh, he's a poet I really love It's a special Father's Day show too I should have mentioned his, uh, It's just a coincidence But his poem in Rattle is about his father Next Sunday is Father's Day So join us then uh, We'll do the prompt afterward And we'll talk to Win Cooper On Rattlecast number 98 That is Sunday, June 20th Noon p.m. Eastern Time The early slot next week So be prepared Noon Eastern Time, nine uh, Pacific. Rattlecast number ninety-eight. Hope to see you then. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll do uh, we'll do this all again. Talk to you later. Bye.